Hello, I'm Gavin Giovanoni, a neurologist based in the East End of London, and I'm doing this MSLV podcast to uh, actually celebrate. Um, several things have happened, but the important one is multiple sclerosis has finally been recognized as a global problem, and what's triggered this is that the WHO made a decision last week to add three disease-modifying therapies to the essential medicines list. Uh, and this includes an off-label therapy called rituximab. And um, the reason why I'm celebrating this is because this vindicates um, a, an initiative I started in 2014 um, about off-label prescribing to deal with the inequities of access to disease-modifying therapies uh, globally. The other two agents are glutarum acetate uh, as well as cladribine, and I personally think cladribine is going to be the real game-changer because it's a small molecule tablet, and when it comes off patent and becomes very cheap, it will be able to be adopted uh, globally, and it's also a very high, high, highly effective therapy. Stepping back, I just want to uh, reflect uh, on my career, I suppose, as an MS expert, um, and one of the problems we have is when you look at innovation uh, and the resultant changes that innovation has um, and you look at it from year to year, very little happens on a year-to-year -year basis. But when you look over decades, you see what enormous strides happen in a field. And I recall arriving in London back in 1993. I traveled from South Africa to do my PhD. And shortly after I arrived, literally months after I arrived, interferon beta uh, for, uh, for relapsing remitting multiple sclerosis was, first of all, the trial results were announced, and then it was licensed in the United States. And this was kind of the first uh, therapy uh, to be licensed and completely changed the playing field, and the rest is history. I must point out that interferon beta wasn't the first agent to modify the course of MS. There were other drugs before that that were shown to uh, slow down worsening. For example, cyclosporin for uh, a transplant drug, but it wasn't licensed because it was considered to be too toxic for people with MS. <clears throat> <clears throat> anyway, the uh, reception that interferon beta got in the UK was very poor. It was a very muted affair. Uh, some senior academics in neurology felt that spending that sort of money on uh, interferon beta was just a no-no. They thought the drug wasn't very effective, and they thought that the resources that would go to, spend, uh, to, to paying for interferon beta for the NHS uh, would be better spent on physiotherapists. Um, not to say that the budgets for therapies and physiotherapists are completely different budgets, but that's not the point. There was even one senior academic who was concerned that interferon beta would affect the ongoing natural history studies that we were involved in. In other words, it would uh, impact on studying MS. Uh, quite ridiculous now, but uh, back then, these are the kinds of um, resistance you know, that, that there was to uh, using interferon beta. And so I think the mid-90s and the noughties were extraordinary times uh, uh, in the UK neurology community where MS experts had to be, you know, pitted themselves against the neurology establishment who thought that uh, these treatments weren't uh, justified. Sadly, this has impacted on the uh, reputation of British MS uh, and British neurology in general. You know, we consider it to be ultra-conservative and resistant to change. Uh, and you, when we go to meetings, we often the, the butt of various jokes <laughs> about how we practice uh, MS neurology in the UK. 
And the reason why I think this is quite pertinent is because what's happening, MS seems to be playing out in the field of Alzheimer's disease. Some of you may or may not be aware that the FDA in the United States recently licensed a new monoclonal antibody we call lecanemab for treatment of early Alzheimer's disease. This was announced uh, early in July, and I've put a link in the newsletter to the FDA press release. And already in the UK, the NASA is already saying it. it's going to be too expensive for the NHS. The effects are too small to justify its use. And I'm afraid I'm going to have to disagree just because of my experience in the MS space. We should be celebrating the fact that we now have effective therapies for Alzheimer's disease. And I'm almost certain that lecanemab will usher in the beginning of a golden age. And I'm talking about a golden age because we've just been through it with multiple sclerosis in the treatment and hopefully the prevention of dementia, particularly Alzheimer's disease. And interferon beta, you can go back and you can say, well, it was only a moderately effective therapy, but it catalyzed a remarkable era in the treatment of MS and the development of you know, several classes of therapies since then and more classes to come. And we've completely transformed the clinical course of MS beyond recognition. Now, I have to remind my trainees um, what I saw uh, when I was a trainee when we didn't have disease-modifying therapy. They don't see what MS can look like, in other words, the natural history of the disease because we had such effective therapies. And when I was a trainee, we always had several patients on our neurology wards with MS. Either they were admitted to manage bad relapses, they were either having diagnostic workups, maybe rehabilitation, or we were sorting out complications uh, related to MS. For example, pressure sores. We always had somebody with bad pressure sores on the ward. And nowadays, I must say, it's very uncommon to have a patient with multiple sclerosis on the neurology wards. And I think the reason for that is because our DMTs are so effective at managing the disease, and we also have very good management pathways now designed to keep patients out of hospital. And so I suppose the commonest reason for someone with MS to be in hospital is that their initial presentation, which is usually a brainstem or spinal cord attack, requires admission for a hospital for the diagnostic workup and treatment. Uh, I find that most of these patients come by our stroke pathway and we take them, all, take them over from the stroke ward. Um, there are other reasons for people in MS being in hospital, and these tend to go via A&E and they go to other specialties. They don't come to neurology, and they're usually people with more advanced progressive disease and have complications. And the typical complications that uh, result in unscheduled or urgent hospital admissions are urinary tract or low respiratory tract infections, pneumonia, for example. We've seen some people with falls and fractures and head injuries, uh, some people with fecal impaction. Some come in with severe pressure sores and had to be managed. And uh, sadly, we have attempted suicides that come by the psychiatric units. So these are all very grim reasons to be admitted to hospital, but they are becoming less common. And they are less common because we have a much wider adoption now of treating MS early and treating MS effectively, and particularly using a higher efficacy therapies first line, so-called flipping the pyramid strategy. So this is becoming less of a problem and will become less of a problem with uh, time. Anyway, there is some good news. So um, um, the good news is this WHO decision. But when I was in 2014, I took six months off uh, clinical work and I went on a sabbatical and I traveled around the world to see how MS was being managed globally. I went to uh, MS centers in the US, Canada, across Europe, Australia, South America, India, and I also went to South Africa. And it was the uh, my experience in India and South Africa that shocked me the most. 
unless you were wealthy and had private healthcare insurance, you were uh, you were unable to access treatments, and MS essentially left to run its natural course. So we are seeing back in 2014 what I had been seeing before DMTs were around, uh, and this prompted me to start what I called an essential off-label DMT list. This list considered or consisted of drugs and still consists of drugs that were not licensed to treat MS, so we have to use them off-label, but there was a sufficient evidence base behind these drugs in MS to give neurologists the confidence that they would work. And if you combine this list with the uh, therapeutic strategy of treating to a target of no apparent inflammatory disease activity, in other words, you would <clears throat> monitor people and shift them to more effective therapies, uh, it was quite clear that this list was sufficient uh, to make people with multiple sclerosis in resource-poor environments activity-free, disease activity-free, and they could be managed relatively effectively. And uh, my list was very simple. There were nine therapies on it, uh, azathioprine, cladribine, cyclophosphamide, fludarabine, leflunomide, which is a prodrug for teriflunomide, low-dose methotrexate, mitoxantrone, rituximab, and, and obviously uh, a hemopoietic stem cell transplantation. And the question I've got to ask is, I've been pushing this list now for you know almost a decade, and the question is, did it make a difference? And I think it did. Um, you know, when I first visited uh, India, there were only 2% of people on disease-modifying therapies. And when I visited earlier this year, one of the leading MS neurologists thanked me for at least nudging the Indian neurologist to start using off-label rituximab. Uh, and he thinks now that about 30% of MS patients in India now are being treated with rituximab, which is an enormous improvement uh, from when I first went out there in 2014. So I think the list has had a, a limited effect in some countries. Um, maybe the biggest impact was in 2015, the uh, Multiple Sclerosis International Federation asked me to present the rationale behind my essential off-label DMT list to their members. This was at the annual meeting in London. And I think my presentation went down well, and it actually coincided or dovetailed with their own campaign to improve access to MS therapies worldwide. So this subsequently led to the MSIF Off-Label off Treatments Initiative, or the MALT Initiative, and this resulted in two submissions to WHO to get the MS disease-modifying therapies onto the WHO's list of essential medicines. Um, sadly, the first submission failed, and at that time we put forward acetate, fingolimod, and ocrelizumab. And I think it failed because we were given the wrong advice and really didn't consider the cost of these therapies to you know low-income countries particularly, or low-middle-income countries. However, we were not disheartened, and the MSIF, uh, the MALT committee, went back to the drawing board, and we and they resubmitted a, a much more considered application um, last year, and this one included cladribine, glitromastate, and rituximab. And the good news is last week, the WHO green-lighted this list, and these three drugs now will be included in the essential medicines list uh, for treating MS. And I've put a link to the WHO press release on this. And I must say, when I had my accident in November 2020 and I needed prolonged rehabilitation, I had to resign from I just a whole lot of initiatives. I just didn't have the energy or time to continue. So I came off the MALT group, the, the MSIF's group for uh, access, and I also had to resign from the Cochrane Review Panel for Rituximab. At that time, we wanted to 
review the evidence base supporting rituximab as an off-label treatment for MS. So I can't claim I played a very active role in the submission. I was involved in the first uh, part of the submission, uh, developing the evidence base, but I had to pull out. But that doesn't really matter. I mean, I just can't stress um, the importance of this decision to include three drugs on the essential medicines list for the global MS community. Firstly, this is now the WHO acknowledging that MS is a, is a problem and a treatment problem globally. Um, the second reason is that our low and low middle income countries will have to recognize that MS is a treatable condition and they will hopefully be forced into including the diagnosis and management of MS as part of their healthcare plans. So they can't ignore it now because it's made it onto the WHO treatment list. So it's got to be taken seriously. Um, <clears throat> I know that there's going to be a lot of debate about the merits of the three DMTs on the list. However, there's you're never going to satisfy everybody and there's a good rationale uh, behind each one. I think the acetate was chosen because of its safety profile. Um, I mean, and there's no need for monitoring and it's got a very good track record in pregnancy and breastfeeding. The problem with acetate, it's a complex therapy. It's a cocktail of small uh, peptides um, and it therefore has quite high manufacturing requirements. Uh, and ideally, each batch has to be tested in EAE in animals. So a generic or bisimilar GA is not that cheap. And so it may be too expensive to be adopted by low-income countries, for example. The other issue is a cold chain must be maintained um, because it's a peptide biologic. Um, and so it might make the term acetate storage and distribution problematic in certain healthcare environments. You know, not all. I mean, even low-income countries have cold chains, but I'm thinking about refugee camps, etc. You know, so it, there are hurdles for GA to be adopted. And because it's given under this subcutaneously by injection three times a week, um, you know, there's the whole issue around injectables. Now, Cladribine was chosen uh, because it's a tablet and it has a very good safety profile, has a low monitoring requirement, and the fact that it's an immune reconstitution therapy and is given a short courses with the majority of people going into long-term remission, I think this will be the game changer because it's a tablet. I'm aware that at the moment it's still on patents, so the tablet formulation is still expensive in most uh, countries. But when that patent expires, and because it's a small molecule, the price will plummet by over 90%. And so it'll become the cheapest uh, drug on the, you know, on the uh, WHO list and will certainly uh, change the face of MS globally. Uh, in the interim, there is a generic, uh, the parenteral formulation, which can be given IV or subcutaneously. There's different formulations available. And you can even drink these. Uh, there is a, a hematologist in Sweden who's, the, who's shown that you can take the parenteral IV formulation and take it orally. It's got a got about a 40% bioavailability and works as well. And they've been using that in oncology without having to give infusions. <clears throat> I suspect rituximab will prove the most controversial because it's the only one on the list that's actually off-label, hasn't been licensed uh, for treating MS, although it is used quite widely as a therapy for uh, MS. I'm still a little bit hesitant about a rituximab. We haven't optimized the dose, so we don't know what dose is the real dose that should be used. And there are so many different protocols out there, so it's quite confusing when you talk about which dose to use. <clears throat> I actually have discussed uh, anti-CD20 dosing uh, quite a few times on the MS Selfie 
uh, newsletters. And so I'd, uh, I've put two links to previous MSLF newsletters where I go through the issue around dosing. And I think when you actually go beyond suppressing relapses and MRI activity, because they seem to be very sensitive to anti-CD20 therapies, and you start looking at the end organ, brain volume loss and disability progression, I think there's a rationale for using higher doses than what we currently use. Now, rituximab was not completely humanized, so there is an issue around anti-drug antibodies, and the assay for anti-drug antibodies is difficult to access and to deliver in resource-poor settings. So that's another factor, is immunogenicity. And again, it's a biological therapy, so it's given as an intravenous infusion. So there's also the cold chain and the healthcare logistics about delivering uh, infusion therapies. <clears throat> and because it's a biological therapy, and we know that even you, even though there are quite a few biosimilars on the market, the price has come down, but it hasn't come down that much. So it's still an expensive therapy, uh, even in uh, you know low middle in low income countries or middle income countries, and even in India, where rituximab is now widely adopted as a treatment for MS, the costs are still a hurdle for a lot of people uh, starting on treatment. However, hopefully once ocrelizumab comes off patent and we get biosimilars of ocrelizumab, um, the WHO will have the sense to replace rituximab with ocrelizumab. I think the evidence base for ocrelizumab, uh, both for relapsing and primary progressive, is superior to rituximab. Antidrug antibodies are not really a big problem on ocrelizumab. They occur with about half a percent versus rituximab. It's way over 8%. Uh, and the effective dose of ocrelizumab is relatively well established. We kind of have confidence in the dosing of ocrelizumab, and we don't. I don't have confidence in the right dosing of rituximab. Anyway, the MS stakeholders now, at least in these resource-poor environments, can now use the WHO's essential medicines list, you know, to demand better care for people with MS in their countries. You know, this is now acknowledging that MS is on the international global health agenda, there are recommended treatments on the essential medicines list, so low and uh, and low and low income and middle income countries cannot ignore this anymore. They're going to have to uh, step up and start thinking about how they provide care for people with MS living in their countries. And so uh, this is why I think we as an MS community should celebrate the news uh, uh, and celebrate it globally. And I think we should also thank the MSIF for all its hard work. And I mean it's really hard work. There were some very dedicated people behind the WHO's uh, submissions uh, for getting it done and getting it past the goalposts. And so uh, it's fantastic news. Anyway, if you agree with this or disagree with me, leave some comments. Let's discuss this. But I think you know we need to be uh, thankful that we have organizations, charities like the MSIF and the various MS societies that belong to the MSIF uh, to make this happen.